Now, one of the challenges I'm conscious of at Christmas is to embrace the feelings of Christmas without by any way diminishing the facts of the real world. It's um, something that the marketing agents and the advertising agencies, I think, find particularly difficult to do. We require them to deliver the feelings of Christmas, but not to do it in such a saccharine, sweet way that we feel they're diminishing the facts of the real world that we face. I mean, think of the John Lewis campaigns. They actually started back in 2007. Of course, it went viral in 2011. You probably remember the advert, the boy waiting for Christmas as the calendar ticks over day by day, and he's eagerly awaiting like every child, and then Christmas arrives, and he runs to give a present, not to get a present. And I know what you're thinking. Wonderful. Children aren't like that in real life, at least not mine. And then, of course, we had Monty the Penguin in 2014. He was a flappingly good success, wasn't he? But then this year, well, as um, we had Edgar the Fire-Breathing Dragon, I don't know what you thought of it. I know that it divided opinion a little bit, but as one person who had obviously been reading up on the Christmas puns put it, he hardly set the world alight, did he? Not doing great. So, you know, these advertisers, of course, have it. It's just so hard for them because you want that Christmas feeling, but you don't want to diminish the facts. And we're conscious of a world that needs something more than just a bit of escapism. And I suppose that's really our question. Is Christmas just a time when we gather around, sing some songs, read about some old myths, have a bit of mulled wine? As it slips down, we escape for a moment. But we know in the back of our minds, as we do, that we're going to come down to earth with a bump in January when we have to engage again with the real world? Or is there something of substance to Christmas that means that whilst it is still wonderful, that it can still give the feelings of Christmas we long for, it has the capacity to engage with the facts of the real world? I wonder if you noticed in our reading that that first Christmas that we heard about from the reading in um, Matthew's Gospel was not just a bit of escapism. It had profoundly impacted everybody. No one in our reading is left unaffected, unchanged by it. Herod is greatly disturbed by it. We'll come to him in a moment. The whole of Jerusalem is shaken by it. The Magi are overjoyed by it, but no one is neutral about it. Now, here is something which delivers both the wonder of Christmas but also the real engagement we desire. Let's look at it together and consider two things that I think get to the root of this, and it's all about the baby and who he is. We're going to consider the nature of Jesus and then the response to Jesus as we try to work out how this can affect our lives. Let's look first of all at the nature of Jesus. The first thing to note is how careful Matthew is to place this in space, time, and history. Here is no myth. It doesn't read like a myth. It reads like history because it isn't a myth. It is history. Matthew carefully places Jesus in the reign of Herod the Great. Now, we know a lot about Herod the Great from historians at the time, particularly Josephus. Herod was a shrewd and at times brutal leader. He had ascended to the throne, the Herodian throne, by fighting and putting down his opponents. He bribed and paid off the Romans, which meant that they gave him lots of autonomy to do as he wanted, but he was a vain despot. He did what he pleased. Josephus reports that at his death, he was so paranoid that no one would grieve for him that he instructed his son to kill some of the most loved public officials so that he could be sure there would indeed be mourning on his death. Fortunately, his son had the good sense not to do that, but that gives you an idea of this man. 
a vain despot, but one who knew how to play the crowd. He did many, many great building projects, and so he was a kind of a mixture of someone you hated and you feared and at times you quite liked. But as we hear about Herod, we're intended to do a compare and contrast between this King Herod and this baby, Jesus. Did you notice how in the end of the second line of our reading, the Magi asked the key question, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Matthew is wanting us to see how you come to be king. Herod has fought his way to power. He's clawed his way to power. He's manipulated his way to power. He's seized it and he's retained it by fear. But this child is born king. Please notice, he's not born to become king. That would be different. That's the way every monarch in some ways becomes king or queen. No, he's born king. He's already king the moment he's born. No one else does that. And we're intended to see that this is natural authority, instantaneous authority that this baby has. He's born king. Notice it's not just that he's got a natural, instantaneous authority about him, but also the extent of his authority. You see, Herod, as powerful as he was, just ruled a small part of Palestine known then as Judea, and ultimately only ruled it under the say-so of the Romans. But the Magi, and notice we're not told how many there are, three gifts, maybe three or more, we don't know, Magi, Magi being rulers or kings or wise people, governors, prime ministers from far off countries, probably from Babylon, hundreds if not thousands of miles away, they come to worship. In other words, this is a picture of the extent of the authority of Jesus. It's not just over a small part or a provincial people in Judea or Palestine but it extends to the ends of the earth. A prophecy about him in Psalm 72, 11 says, may all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. So he's got natural instantaneous authority. He's got an extensive authority that goes to the ends of the earth. And thirdly, he's the long promised king. That was the point of the prophecy we had about a third of the way down the passage. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This prophecy from the prophet Micah, over 700 years before Jesus' birth, because the point is that his promise, the promise of his coming has echoed down history, long promised, now in the person of Jesus Christ, fulfilled. Natural authority over all people, long promised. Now, When we're talking about leaders, of course, deep in our consciousness at the moment is the fact that we've all just voted, and I'm not going to get into the whys and wherefores of the result, but one of the reasons that this vote, I'm sure, in the general election, as any vote for a leader stirs such deep passions and emotions in us, is that we care deeply about who our leaders are, because we know that a good leader can profoundly improve our lives, and a bad leader, well, they can make it a real pain, can't they? And of course, we're praying that the government will be the former type and not the latter, whatever our fears. But it's interesting how in all cultures, there are deep myths, deep longings for that perfect rule. Here in Britain, we have the the myth of King Arthur, the one who ruled with unparalleled military prowess, but also one who is just. That's the symbolism of the round table, isn't it? Equitable. All people can have a seat at Arthur's table, and we're told... You know, maybe that Arthur will come back when Britain most needs him. Maybe for us to win the next Rugby World Cup or something like that. But anyway, that's another day. But it's not just the British 
You know, the Chinese, for example, have a myth about Huafei, who, you know, ruled over a part of China and showed military prowess, defeating armies of thousands with just a few hundred, but also showed that great Chinese virtue of loyalty to family and to the soldiers and to the community, and so brought in a just rule as well. And then we have the cultural resonance of our favorite stories about leaders, like Lord of the Rings. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. And one of the reasons these myths have such cultural resonance, whether King Arthur or Lord of the Rings or something else, is because we long for a good leader. We hope that one day we'll have such a leader, one who will have the power to do and to really make an impact in the world, but the goodness and the wisdom and the justice to know how to employ that power. And Matthew is wanting to say to us that those longings can find their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. Because here is one with natural authority, with extensive authority to the ends of the earth, and as he grows up, here is one who will have the wisdom and the goodness to know how to employ that authority. Here is the long-promised Messiah, the promised one, the King, the one deep in our hearts we all long for, the one the myths are all really about, it's him. But what is interesting is how people respond. Let's consider now the response to Jesus. And when you think about it, it's unsurprising, really, but when such a king comes, he polarizes responses. Herod, we're told, a few lines down, four lines down, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem is disturbed because they know that when Herod's disturbed, that doesn't go well for them in general. But Herod is disturbed because he wants to remain king, and so Jesus is a threat to him. He's a threat to his authority. And I want to suggest to you that deep in every human heart, when we really grasp who Jesus is and his natural authority and the extent of his authority, there is always a seed that we respond in the same way. We find him a bit of a threat. We often like to think that if a real king came, the great king, to put the world right, that we'd welcome him in. But actually, it's not so simple, is it? Because we love to be autonomous. Literally, autonomos, meaning self-rule. We love self-rule. My life, right? My choices. My gifts, my money, my house, my home. It's me. Now, of course, we don't say it quite so starkly as that if we've got a bit of emotional intelligence because it doesn't sound so nice, but that's what we think deep down. And so when one comes along who says, no, it's my world, your life, to an extent, but actually it's my gift to you, uh, your rules? No, they're not your rules. You're not the moral arbiter in the universe. They're my rules. I'm the beating moral heart at the center of the universe. I'm the conductor of the orchestra of morality. Uh, my money? No, that's a gift to you for you to steward according to wisdom and justice and the concerns that I have and to be generous to others, which we find so very hard, don't we? I'm in charge? No, you're not in charge. I don't know how your children, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I can't even control them, let alone the world. He says he's in charge. So when God's King Jesus comes, just like Herod, there's something in us that is disturbed. It's unsettling because the real king has come, and the question is, will we give up our self-rule and our pretensions to the throne 
and acknowledge that he is the good ruler that should sit on the throne. But then there's another response, and I wonder if you noticed how the Magi are very different. They don't seem to find him such a threat. They come to worship him. Now, what accounts for the difference? Well, I suggest to you they grasp something very important about Jesus that we need to grasp too. They grasp that though Jesus is no less king, he's a particular type of king. He has no less authority, but he employs his authority in a very different way. That is, he's a king who comes in humility and weakness. It's true, isn't it, on human level, that normally the greater a person, the more inaccessible they are. You know, think of the great sports stars, someone you deeply admire. The more famous they are, the harder it is to get to see them. None of us, I don't think, could just waltz on up to Buckingham Palace and see the Queen. We have to be invited. She's inaccessible to everyday people. But Jesus isn't inaccessible to anybody. Everyone comes to see him when he's born. The shepherds come, and they're just the nobodies. The magi come, and they don't even have an invitation. Everyone comes. And this is true with any baby, with my um, four-year-old and my two-year-old. When they were babies, I was always struck that when you'd walk down the street with a pram, people would just kind of poke their heads right up to them and say, oh, isn't he cute, and touch him on the cheek. Oh, he's lovely. He must take after his mother. Thanks very much. (laughs) But you'd never do that with an adult, right? I mean, if someone came up to you and touched you on the cheek, you'd be, what on earth are you doing? (laughs) But with babies, they're accessible And that's part of the point, that Jesus, when he's born, is accessible. But as he grows up, here's the amazing thing. Though he shows incredible authority and power, he is never any less accessible. Everyone can come to him. Anyone comes to him. doesn't matter race and ethnic background, sociodemography, male or female. All come to him. All flock to him. He turns no one away. He is no less great no less powerful when he's an adult, and no less accessible. How unusual. What a king. You see, one of the remarking things about him is that he is a king born in humility, and he's a king who lives out in humility because he's a king for us. He's a king with us. As he goes on to be served, life as a and that's why his life, as he repeatedly says, as he grows, is all about his death. Because his death is the means by which he secures that accessibility to God his Father. Greatness, humbled, vulnerable, open to us, so that anyone can come. As we will sing in one of the hymns, he came down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all, and his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall, with the poor and meek and lowly, lived on earth, our Savior, holy. He's a king who's come to save us, he's God with us, he's here to open God up to us. And I suggest to you it's because the Magi grasp something of that, that they don't fear Jesus that they are not distressed by Jesus, but they draw near to him. I wonder as I close how your heart responds to the idea of the true king coming, the one with all authority, the long-promised king. Where are you, to put it like this, on a spectrum of Herod to the Magi? I mean, not in terms of would you think you're like Herod, obviously none of us, I hope, are like Herod, but where do you feel in your emotional reaction to Jesus? Do you feel disturbed by him? Or do you want to draw near to him and rejoice at him? 
If you feel yourself rejecting him, pushing away at the idea of you giving up soul for all of your life, I wonder, have you really grasped both his authority but also his humility? He's not come to oppress you. He's not come to domineer you. He comes in weakness and humility to serve you, to liberate you. But here's the thing, it's counterintuitive. True liberation comes in living for him. True freedom comes in giving up your rights for him. And all of us, I'm conscious, like to hold on to power, but we ultimately would do well to give it to someone who is wise enough to yield it properly. And I wonder if you notice that the Magi, the closer they get to him, the more joyous they become. Down towards the bottom, about five lines up from the bottom, it says, when they saw the star as they came near, they were overjoyed. And then on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and they bowed down and worshiped him. They go from inquisitiveness to joy to worship. The closer you come to Jesus, the more joy there is, the more it affects you, the more it improves you, the more it changes you. That's the message. Keep him at arm's length, he'll never change your life. Welcome him into your life, oh, the joy, the worship, the celebration. As I close, I don't know what area of your life you're worried about this Christmas. Maybe an unexpected diagnosis, something you're just processing yourself, maybe where the money is gonna come from to pay for Christmas in January. Maybe problems at work or problems in the family. We all have challenges. How can that worry turn to joy? Well, it comes by giving it over to him. If he's the true king, if he's got real wisdom, real authority, then it stands to reason that actually giving your life over to him is the most sensible thing you can do. None of us can run our lives as well as we want to. Sometimes the first mature thing we do is really admitting that to ourselves and to others. But if you accept him as your king, then he will give you peace and joy as he takes control of your life and he reassures you that in his hands is best. Well, I'm gonna close there and suggest that I finish with a prayer. If you'd like to join me, why don't you bow your heads and let me lead us in a prayer. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Heavenly Father, wherever we are on a spectrum from Herod to the wise men this evening, help us to be willing to go on a journey, to investigate, to look into this, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, and to consider who Jesus is. And might we see that his rule, his kingship is good news, and would that give us joy as we worship when we pray for his namesake. Amen.